The Echo Chamber, brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers. And sponsored by March Communications, connecting innovation and people. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Echo Chamber podcast. This is Arun Sudharman. We're recording this one in the lovely city of Dubai, where the Homes Report is hosting its first Dubai Innovation Summit tomorrow. And we're joined by one of the speakers from the event, a repeat offender, as far as the Echo Chamber is concerned. I think this is your third appearance. It's Alex Malouf from P&G and IABC and Metpro and various other... PR organizations. Yeah, I, I've, I've been a very, very naughty boy, you know, obviously in this life or in the previous life to, to make now three appearances yeah, you have. on the podcast. Well, yeah, but, you know, I, you say that, but we always enjoy having you on because um, you are willing to discuss anything, as we'll soon find out. And, uh, and also you ask questions, which I think is refreshing. I'm no holds barred, but also, as well, Aaron, you're a wonderful host and you really <laughs> should be working in PR. Um, well, perhaps, well, perhaps, perhaps not. I think I, I, I'm better off on the outside observing. So we have the conference tomorrow. Uh, we're going to be doing a session on talent, mm. uh, which is an issue close to your heart, I think. In fact, it was your idea to, to put this panel together. Uh, and I'm looking forward to it. I'm moderating it. Uh, and not only... Um, is this conversation going to be useful for our listeners? It will be useful for me because it will help me prepare for tomorrow's session. Um, it strikes me, as it does in many markets around the world, frankly, um, that the issue of talent is actually the biggest obstacle to growth of the PR industry. Um, is that the case here as well? I think that's undoubtedly the case, especially the lower level. Mm -hmm. Agencies have a particularly difficult time in terms of finding fresh talent or juniors in the industry who then will stay in the industry and, and develop careers. Um, and this is particularly a challenge in this region due to the, the nature of the different cultures here. Mm. Um, one thing which you know, we'll be discussing tomorrow is, for example, the Arabic language. Um, 200 million Arabic speakers mm -hmm. and yet the industry in the region is still very much slanted towards English language. Mm. Um, that's one issue. I think another issue is in terms of bringing on the locals, seeing mm -hmm. what we can do in terms of developing them and, and developing their skills so that they're comfortable at taking on communications at any level. Um, and also, as well, there's the, the issue of essentially pivoting um, to a digital age. And you know, we talk a lot about digital, but you, know, you look at societies here, everybody is consuming content online. Everybody's well, doing yeah. it on mobile. Um, the sites they can access. And, um, of course, <laughs> um, we're very careful what we access in this region. Yeah. Um, but also as well, it's, it's the understanding of, of how you can best use digital tools in terms of reaching out. And you know, this is why we need to bring in you know, younger blood 
mm-hmm. you know, people who are who who are much younger than me who know how mm-hmm. to use Snapchat. Um, but in all seriousness, you know, people mm-hmm. who aren't digital natives, who see everything around them, and who are able to do this, you know, because they've grown up with it. Mm-hmm. So you, the the issues you you mentioned are are in some respects universal, but I suspect there are um, you know some some specific local factors as well. Um, is the industry doing a good enough job positioning itself as a destination of choice for the for the best young people in the region, the people who are digitally fluent, who can understand client issues and um, can bring a range of skills to the equation? Well, look, if I was going to be a teacher, I'd probably give us a pass. Um, but we can do much, much better. Mm. Um, I don't think the industry does enough with universities. Mm-hmm. Doesn't do enough with um, even high school students who are looking at what they should be studying next. Um, and you find a lot of people, again, like on the markets, they, they gravitate towards the industry after they've already graduated, after they've already worked maybe a couple of years in the media or done something else. We're still not bringing enough young talent through the education sector. Mm. And, and that's why you know, when people say to me, you know, we have a talent issue, you know, I always respond and ask, what are you doing then to solve this? You know, how are you going to universities? How are you engaging with these students? How are you showing young people the good that we do mm. and getting them excited about having a career in the industry? Mm. That's missing today, mm-hmm. especially in this region where we do have universities who offer communications as, uh, as a major. But that, there's that gap between, again, you know, what they learn in terms of the classroom the theory and then the practice of what we do. So you know, even if they've already decided, you know, I like comms, um, I like the sound of it, we are still not stepping in and actually showing them you know, how it matters practically mm-hmm. in terms of the function. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned the issues around localization, kind of bleeds into the, the debate, not debate, but the problem with diversity. Um, it's not hard to see in this region, much like I think many Asian markets were a decade ago. Most of the agencies, at least, seem to be led by experts, um, by non-nationals. and many of the local executives seem to wind up in government. How do you address that? Uh, Look, it's a tough one. Um, If I was a local um, and I had the option of of going for a nice government salary, Mm. um, shorter working hours, um, I've worked on the side, so I understand the the pressures of working on agency side and, and, you know, you sometimes get days where you work very long hours. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't go home until you know, the sun has set, um, and that's that's on a good day. Um, you know why would they want to come mm. to work in the private sector? And and likewise um, on the agency side, you know, can agencies here afford salaries which would appeal to the locals? Um, mm-hmm. You know, I. You know, I don't envy agencies in terms of uh, looking at 
attracting locals. Um, and also as well, government entities need to understand the importance of diversity. You know, if you look at say UAE, or if you look at other countries in the Gulf, the nationals are actually a minority in the population. And yet when you look at government departments, pretty much they're all national, mm. you know, and yet they're still serving an expat population. Right. That's so, you know, yeah. unless you're actually able to understand the people you're serving, yeah. then how can you communicate with them? But do they think about it that way? There is, there is um, a strong feeling as well among many nationals in terms of wanting to work in government because they want to serve their country. Okay. Which, again, you know, is, is a very noble sentiment, but, but also as well, my argument is, look, helping diversify the economy, working in the private sector, mm. showing others, expats, you know, what your culture means and educating them in terms of how they can better understand you and again the local society that is also important to us mm. you know we, we can't for example you know, agencies can't pretend to to do government work mm. without having nationals on their books because again you've got to think about the language arabic language but it's not just the arabic language it's local traditions local customs and plus as well we're in a, a region which uh, relies heavily on relationships it's not about essentially what you know as mm. often as who you know. Yeah. So we've got to, we've got to address these issues. Um, and we've, I think, again, the industry has, has stayed away from discussing both sides because it's convenient, but we've, we've got to have honest, transparent debates about the issues of getting locals into the private sector, especially on the agency side, and also as well, encouraging governments to understand the importance of diversity mm. in terms of their communications makeup. It can't purely be about just hiring nationals um, for the sake of hiring nationals. Again, okay, we, we understand the localization drive, getting more nationals into the function, employing more nationals, but you've also gonna have the skills to be able to communicate with your entire audience. Mm. Yeah, that's a tough one, I think. More money, better hours. <laughs> Well, what, what would you choose? I, I know you choose the right thing, Aaron. <laughs> These options aren't open to me, okay. Alex. Maybe you, but you know. Well, you're a well-paid journalist. It's okay. <laughs> I'm a journalist. I'm a journalist. But you know, I left the uh, the corporate world a long time ago. Uh, I look back wistfully, fondly, my days at Weber Shandwick. Um, but no, no one, as you know full well, no one in their right mind works in the media in order to make a lot of money. Um, I suspect you could probably look at the uh, the disparity between agency and government and uh, maybe draw similar <laughs> conclusions. <laughs> um, I, I have known people to, to earn very good salaries in terms of government, but mm. yeah, I think my, my point still holds, we've, we've got to do mm. much more. Um, and and you know, the funny thing is, I do know some, I, I know some locals who work in, in the private sector. Um, it is happening in certain markets now, for example, in Bahrain, mm -hmm. um, right. you see Bahraini nationals working in the private sector. You also see it in Oman. Also in Saudi, it's becoming more of a trend. Okay. Um, but we need to make it happen in the, the other markets as well. We need to mm. push more heavily and we need to get more locals seeing the private sector as an option. Mm -hmm. And also as well, we need to break down, um, I think, the misunderstanding among 
the private sector in terms of on the ability of locals to do a good job. Yeah. Let's talk about one of those markets. Let's talk about Qatar, which is kind of off limits at the moment. I'm curious to know your view um, because obviously there's this, this sort of, I don't know what you, how you describe it, standoff, blockade? Misunderstanding. Maybe. Misunderstanding. But in any case, you have a situation where Qatar is somewhat isolated and is, is not really trading with its Middle Eastern partners. No. Flights have stopped. For the PR industry, it's an issue because one of the things I'd, I'd observed, many of us have observed, is the growth of the industry in Qatar mm. over the last few years. Many international agencies have set up offices there. They have grown those offices. There's been a lot of assignments coming uh, with the World Cup. Big, big spenders like Qatar Foundation, mm. uh, big projects. What does all of this mean for those, for those firms and for those assignments? I think any agency will tell you off the record that what's happened over the past nine, ten months has been a challenge. Um, Dubai is a hub and made many agencies base their regional offices here. Mm. They fly people into other markets uh, like Saudi and also Qatar as well. Mm. And for practical purposes, it's easier today to fly from London, which is yeah. six or seven hours flight. Yeah. than it is from Dubai. Yeah, I looked at uh, getting a flight. I have cousins in Doha, many cousins, and I was looking forward to visiting them later this week, but uh, turns out that won't be happening because it's eight hours once you add in the stopover in... I'm sure they're thinking about you. Kuwait and Bahrain. They think of little else. Of course, <laughs> as we all do. So, so it's a problem. It's look. It's an issue. It's a challenge. Um, how how big a problem is it? Something that we're going to start to see downsizing. Look, it's. I think many agencies have already tackled this. That they, they've worked out how to serve their Qatari clients. Um, and many agencies have shifted that Qatari business over to to London. Mm. Um, so the London offices. Uh, you know, we we're in this situation, which is. Not the best situation to be in, but London is handling the Qatari business, mm. despite the fact that, again, you know, the, the regional offices are are based mainly in the UAE. Um, mm. And you've also got to think again, Qatar, Arabic-speaking country. Um, you know what work is Qatar doing as well in the region? You know how do they want to rely on on agency offices? Um, how are they now supported? So I think agencies have, have had to find a, a solution. But one thing which, again, I've, I've heard from agencies, their clients have been very understanding in Qatar. They, they've, you know, they've seen what agencies have done. I think they've also been very appreciative of, of how the industry has, has coped with this. Mm -hmm. um, we'll see how long this continues. Um, I think, again, for the industry, um, many offices in the region or many agencies would, would like to, again, use Dubai as a hub for everywhere in the, in, in the Gulf region. Um, but we, we have to persevere with, with laws and restrictions as they're, as they're put down on us. Mm. 
and it's not just our industry it's it's pretty much everybody oh yeah sure it's it's across the board um is that still realistic using dubai as the hub or do you think that agencies need to need to get out more localize more get out into more markets i still see many agencies that claim to cover the region and yeah they're in, this they're is standard in dubai and maybe abu dhabi at a stretch you know, it's, it? it's almost like the the Lawrence Ipsum text you see on websites. You know, it's, you know, we cover the region yeah. from our office in Dubai. Yeah. L- look, you can't even cover Abu Dhabi from Dubai. Right. You know? um, practically speaking, if we're going to be pushing the industry to be better, we we need local insights. Mm. And you can't, you know, no matter you know, with all the technology at our hands today, you cannot do that by being sat you know, a couple of hundred miles away couple of thousand miles away mm-hmm. um, you've, you've got to have people who are in country in places like Riyadh and Jeddah in Kuwait Cairo. in Cairo in mm-hmm. Beirut uh, in Amman in Jordan in Oman in Muscat you know you've got to have a regional network if you're going to serve clients in the best possible way mm. uh, and some agencies have got it some it agencies is. understand that yeah. you know we need not just officers, but also as well, we, we need locals. We need people who understand the cultural nuances, even between, say, Jeddah and Riyadh, mm-hmm. you know, how you do things differently, um, how you set up, for example, an event, you know, how you go through the protocol of making something happen. Um, and, and Dubai is a hub. Look, Dubai is very convenient, and Dubai understands very well um, how to position itself for international business you know you get your visa on arrival and mm. as you see wonderful hotels um, English is essentially the the de facto business language here whatever you need you can find but again our job is relationships our job is building relationships yeah. and you know you can't do that online well, yeah, you could come here from London and live two years in Dubai and feel like You've not really left. Well, look, you could <laughs> live here for two years, not even meet a local, exactly. essentially. I mean, it, it, it is the, it's a classic expat bubble here. Um, but I think we are seeing agencies, you know, who are kind of quite keenly aware of that. We're seeing agencies shift to, we've seen it over the past couple of years, them shifting to an in-country model. Um, and that's how they serve clients better, especially mm. when it comes to um, doing more than pure media relations about engaging uh, in terms of public affairs, in terms of internal comms, all the other services which they can offer. Mm. Um, it hasn't been easy over the past couple of years. You know, Saudi's gone through a rough ride in terms of its economy. Um, mm. And Saudi, you know, a lot of the big uh, clients are government. Um, and again, payments have been a challenge. Other markets similarly have gone through many issues. Like you look at Egypt, Egypt has gone through since yeah. six, seven years of turmoil. Yeah, sure. It's actually now seven years. Um, but again, I think if, if clients, clients actually really should be pushing as well agencies to, to go in country mm. and, and say, look, you know, it's not enough for you to say you're sending an email to a journalist or a contact. Mm. You know, when you're sat in Dubai and that person is in Jeddah or in Cairo, you know, I actually want you to be there next to them. Because I'm also there as a client next to them. Yeah. And that, that's where your value comes in. But is this, is this as much of an issue on the client side as well? I mean, how, how, how localized and how in touch are, there, are their comms teams 
course. Well, I think bringing it back to the start of the discussion we had, mm. um, it's also about having that local knowledge and know-how on the client side. Um, and often the client side, you know, that's missing. You know, the client, especially at the multinational, they may bring somebody from outside. Mm. Um, and, you know, but you know, ironically, that, that's where you know, the, the agencies can add even more value. Because if you're a client, if you're somebody coming in from Western Europe or the US or Asia, you will have no clue about this market. Mm -hmm. uh, so actually having people on the ground will give you even more value, which then you can pass on to the client. But you know, clients also need to you know, walk the talk. You know, they should be looking long-term and thinking, okay, how can we essentially localize these positions? How can we bring somebody in who understands, who knows Arabic, who sees the culture, who can engage on that local level with the people that we care about, we want to reach out to. Mm. Okay. So let's talk about ethics. Ethics, yes. The only way is ethics, my favorite our, topic. Our favorite subject. And the Middle East. What a combination. What a combination. Um, Bill Pottinger was pretty active here, had been for, for, for many years. Now, of course, business sold to, to Hanover. But leaving that aside, of course, there's been a lot of mo lot of movement on the issue of ethics since sort of post Bell Pottinger. Um, I think it was last week, or it may have been two weeks ago. I've been on the road now for ten days, so the days all all blur. All the same, blur yeah, into, yeah. All blur yeah. into one. Um, there was a meeting in Madrid. That's think, correct. Yeah, uh, a meeting of various PR associations to discuss this ethical issue, and uh, I didn't use this as my headline. Um, but it struck me as a ethics association decides that ethics is a good thing. Um, now you're actually involved in this. You're on. You're on one of the many boards on which. You yeah, sit. on the Global this Alliance. Is, yeah, one of the yeah. one of the many. So you can you can defend this initiative. I don't want to. I don't want to be too harsh because <laughs> I actually think it's a. You know, they're kind of on a hiding to yeah. nothing. It's a difficult one, um, and at the mercy of individual associations. But for the record, they agreed to set up a task force and keep talking yeah. about ethics. So tell me why this is important. Well, you know, thanks to what happened uh, last year and the year before with Bell Pottinger uh, and with South Africa. And actually, you didn't mention that Zuma has now gone. Which, well, it's all, it's all the snowball, right? Uh, well, you know. PRCA can take Yeah, I was, was going to say, sure. you know, Francis is here. We need to say thank you to him tomorrow for saving uh, the democracy. Um, but... Look, in all seriousness, I understand what you're saying in terms of you know, this being you know, the issue which nobody wants to handle. You know, ethics, we, you know, we, as an industry, we talk about ethics, but often in practice, look, we go and you know, sell, or it's perceived that we are selling our business to the highest or services to the highest bidder. Mm. Um, and the Middle East is no different in that. You know, you've covered couple of agencies you've covered, for example, what APCO is doing with, uh, with the Egyptian government. Um, but having said that, you know, we, I think we still have to keep persevering, at least on, a, on an association level, to remind people that whatever we do needs to be done in the right way. We need to think uh, about issues such as honesty and transparency. And, you know, Whatever we do, we also need to bear in mind that we are representing our industry. You know, we've got to move away from this perception of us being 
you know, spin doctors or people who, you know, manipulate the media, you know, practice the dark arts, whatever you, however you want to uh, spin it. So well, with we, we wouldn't spin it. Well, yeah. Holmes report, you know, you're above that sort <laughs> yeah, of thing. Well, none of us should spin it. That's yeah. the whole point. <laughs> um, but but when I, you know, what what I was very happy about with Madrid is seeing different associations coming together and saying, and also yeah, people like beautiful. Richard Edelman, and saying, okay, look, let let's focus on this, let's come together, let's discuss it, let's see how we can then push the discussion forward, mm. and get beyond what we said before have a universal declaration, universal code, whatever you want to call it. Like the Helsinki Declaration. Or like the Helsinki Declaration and others as well. Um, But but have one concept which everybody understands and everybody can practice. And then even look at issues beyond that. You know, how do we, for example, um, adjudicate on on ethical issues? How do we judge what is ethical and what is not ethical? Not, Not as somebody who's practicing, but as an association. You know, so that when when something wrong is done, we can step in and say, mm-hmm. you know, "Guys, this is not on." Like what happened with Bell Pottinger. Yeah, I mean, Bell Pottinger was an interesting one. I've always felt that. So I, I you know, I covered China extensively, and I, and I cover China now. Um, and China's always had its its fair share of of ethical issues when it comes to public relations. And I've always felt that when it comes to the international agencies in particular, you have people in New York who are, um, you know, saying all the right things about ethics. But then on the ground in China, you have transgressions, minor transgressions, which just go unchecked because that is, you know, in the market is seen as the price of doing business. It happens at big companies. Look at GSK in China, mm. for example. Now, all of these transgressions add up, and I just wonder if we can get to a position where we move behind the kind of loft, move beyond, sorry, the sort of lofty pronouncements. And how do we get to a situation where people on the ground are actually, you know, almost on a day-to-day basis, are aware of of where the line is and and what they can and can't do, and that there will be no penalty. Um, for them, if if the, if if they make a decision where, you know, they are ethically right, but they're commercially wrong. Well, look, this is the big nut we have to crack. Mm. You know, how do you make it relevant to people who are not practicing in New York mm-hmm. or in London or in any other big hub where ethics is constantly referenced? Yeah, um, we have a lot of money in this region at the moment, flowing into London and Washington, mm, yeah. essentially you know, for, for lobbying. For lobbying, I mean, Saudi Arabia is a, a very big spender. And you know, with that, again, how do we make sure that what is being done, not just on behalf of, of governments here, but other entities, is done in the right way? Now, if we get this right, then we can move the the needle in a positive direction whereby you know we are seen to be helping society rather than hindering it or you know helping relationships rather than destroying them um and you know one thing which i do though to give cpr cipr credit for for this they've introduced uh, an ethics module as mandatory 
in terms of doing your professional development, your CPD. So you have to take ethics. Mm. Now, it may only be once a year if you're sat in, in Dubai or in, in any other place in, in the region, but still, it's a start. I think it's, it's an approach uh, which I find fascinating, um, at least in terms of, okay, I'm not gonna say top of mind, because once a year really isn't top of mind, but at least reminding people mm. about how things you know, could and should be done. Uh, because, you know, again, my concern is, and this goes back to start the conversation, I want people to come into the industry who are bright, who are enthusiastic, and want to join PR for the right reasons. And this is all about us and our reputation, which we're supposed to be masters of, and putting out the reputation, good enough reputation to attract these people into the industry. Because if we don't do that, we're just gonna end up, again, facing the same issue, well, maybe two, three years time, with yeah. another big agency. It strikes me that there's two, there's two big problems, at least. The first is this kind of notion of um, moral relativism, right? So this idea that, yes, okay, ethics is fine, mm. but when you're in another country, you should behave in a different way. You know, when in Rome. Right, which is an argument I've never really bought as someone who's grown up in Asia, I don't really feel that, you know, if you're in an Asian country, that it's okay to, for example, burn down forests or torture animals just because it was good, or not good, but it was accepted a generation ago. Um, but the second one is, the, m the more intractable one is, any effort to impose real ethical standards has to carry a cost. Yeah. Is the industry willing to bear that cost? Well, look, again, that's the big question. And I don't um, mean a cost as in an investment. I mean, they will be many cases where they will <coughs> lose out on client income or so forth. We've discussed this before. The industry, uh, you look at it, margins are tight. Um, you now we saw how WPP's agencies were doing uh, recently. Yeah, right. Um, and the question will often come down to, you know, do we want to take an ethical stance? Or do we want to bring some more money and put do it in the kitty? we want to make our numbers this month. Exactly. Um, but, you know, if you look, if you're, if you're a global agency, this also you know, counts for, for your employees as well. Oh, yeah. Um, Long term, there, there's value to it. Short term, there's a cost. But would you want to work with an agency which is, you know, which say, for example, did what Bell Pottinger did? Would you want to be associated with that as an employee? I mean, I can't imagine anyone would say yes, but then if your bonus is tied to whatever the agency makes in a specific quarter of the year, then maybe you think, I don't mind. And then there's also the question, look, if you're willing to make a, an unethical decision in one area, then how does it carry on in other areas as well? So for example, in terms of you know, how you treat your, your female staff. Well, well, then, well, in Bell Pottinger's case, for example, they ended up losing a lot of business yeah. because of... Because of what happened in South Africa. Yeah, their work for the Gupta. I mean, well, obviously they, they lost, eventually they lost so much they had to go out of business. But even early on, they had a very long relationship with, um, I forgot the name of the company, uh, Johan Rupert is mm. the, the CEO, Richemont. Richemont, um, yeah. And, and that, that ended pretty swiftly once he realized that his firm was working for the Guptas. So I guess 
it probably requires well I, I think <coughs> overall and, and it's a great argument for long-termism but unfortunately our industry has f for obvious reasons I think that public ownership being the, mm. the top one has has always been perhaps a little bit too short-term focused well, yeah but even even short-termism you know you look at mm. Bell Pottinger no, they, they went out of business pretty quickly yeah um, I don't think anybody saw how quickly or foresaw how quickly they would essentially go bankrupt mm. or they would you know close up shop um, you know and again you know the the point which I also want to come back to look we are on the business reputation if we don't understand how working with a certain client who has doesn't have impeccable credentials it has many skeletons in the cupboard, and not even skeletons in the cupboard in terms of some some clients. You know, they're out in the open. <laughs> yeah. You know, if they're in we, the living room. Yeah, they're, they're all over the place. <laughs> you know, um, in the kitchen, yeah. in the front door. It's Halloween early. But you know, if if we don't understand how this can negatively impact us, then we should not be in PR. So you think there are some clients that the industry just shouldn't work for? Well, you know, I give you an example. If if you are working today, uh, say with the the Russian government, mm -hmm. um, I think you're going to find it pretty hard to pick up business in the US with the US government. Well, it's, there's sanctions in place, so I think in any case it's difficult. I mean, you know, Iran is another one. I always wonder who will be the first agency to work for North Korea. Yeah, these good luck the, to them. These yeah. are the questions that that, that I ponder. Um, but those are easier ones. It's the it's the one it's the clients that are more of a grey area where you can argue that actually we're going to improve their behaviour. Something which is impossible to measure, by the way, because you don't know how bad they would have been without the agency. Look, as they say about the best of intentions, um, it doesn't always work out how we want it to work out. Um, and yeah, I, I get your point. You know, in terms of taking argument and and you know again positioning it so that it looks much better than it actually is. Um, well, that, you know. That's problematic. Ideally, what you want is to make sure the argument is in line with reality or True. change the reality. True. Um, now, I'm not sure how often that happens. I guess that's the problem. But again, the, you know, the other argument which could be made is even if you try and do that, you, know, mm. you still could be on a slippery slope in terms of you know, being taken down a path where you will keep saying, you know, we, we can do good, we can do good. Of course, yeah. But, you know, you end up doing yeah. much worse at the end of the relationship yeah. than you initially thought at the start of I the relationship. I think that's what happens most of the time. I um, think the intentions are good. I can think of many situations. I would argue Ketchum and Russia is a great example mm. of that. I think the work they did early on really revolved around positioning Russia as a, you know, so as a more attractive destination for foreign investment. Difficult to see anything wrong with that. It was a different time uh, 10 years ago. And I think they, they honestly felt that they, you know, as the longer that the relationship progressed, they, they would, the, the client, in this case the government, would benefit mm. from Ketchum's approach. Um, of course, it ended up going the other way. But, and they did the right thing, I think, in that they extricated themselves uh, from that relationship they probably look back on it now and think 
Perhaps they dodged a bullet. Well, let, let me turn it around because you know, you've asked me about ethics. How how do you how do you tackle the the issue of ethics? You know, what would your advice be as somebody who I'm, is so looking I'm, from the I'm outside? Wary, in? I'm always wary of saying that a particular client should be off limits, unless you know for sure that that client just isn't going to change. I think there are certain. I think there are whole industries you can say are not going to change. Right. I think mm. tobacco is troubling and has shown little inclination to um, to actually behave in a, in a kind of responsible manner. Probably say arms as well, um, especially in terms of retail mm. arms in the US. But beyond those two, I think then you have this massive gray area of companies that are on a spectrum and governments as well, uh, where, you know, they might want to behave better, behave more responsibly, but they're not at the moment. Now the question is whether hiring a PR agency will help them make that transition. I'm not convinced it does often enough. And like you said, I think what happens then is that you off, you get these pragmatic considerations mm. around, okay, well, how much are they paying us this quarter and next quarter? And how long can we go without having to have this moment of reckoning? And then of course, for many agencies, there is no concern about a moment of reckoning, Bell Pottinger, being the obvious example. But there are many agencies like Bell Pottinger. They're just not in the limelight as much. They may, they may be more in the limelight now, uh, or, or we may find out more about them. Uh, but there are many agencies out there who do not care about ethics and really only care about how much money they're going to make. And I uh, think we have to be honest about this. Yeah. Do you think that that's is. wrong? For for the for the reputation of the industry, it is challenging um, because obviously it's like with again let's go back to Bell Pottinger, what they did, you know, tarnishes all of us. Yeah, it's awful. Um, and then to to correct that, you know, you're looking at at years. Um, you know, one thing which comes to mind that I, I saw, you know. Since you won somebody's um, application for uh, for a role, and uh, she's from South Africa, and uh, she actually mentioned, you know, I I wanted to, you know, I liked uh, social media, I wanted to use it more, but after what happened with Bob Pottinger, you know, I don't want to go near social media now. So yeah. you know, that that's you know that's the the repercussion which you know, many of us will have to deal with, for example, if we're, we're doing work in South Africa, um, being seen in that light mm-hmm. by, by the public. Um, so the, I'm sure the debate will continue. Um, and uh, as always, I'm grateful to, to you and Paul on the Homes Report for, for leading the way on, on uh, seriously leading the way on many of these issues. You know, Paul loves to write about ethics and morality. Mm. Um, but it's down to us in the day, the industry itself, to find a way whereby we can survive as an industry, we can make money and grow, but we also end up doing work which benefits all of our stakeholders, all of society, which we are incredibly proud of. Mm. And, and that's, my, that's my nirvana, so to speak. Sure. So new, new long read on the Homes Report website. Um, I should plug at this point by Paul Holmes, is morality optional 
in PR, definitely worth a read, although um, it's for subscribers only. Uh, but definitely. Hint, hint. <laughs> that, that, that's as overt as I'm going to get. Alex, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule, I'm sure, uh, to join us again. And I will see you tomorrow at the conference. Look forward to it. Thanks very much. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Echo Chamber. I am here with Angie Schneider, who is the founder of Spry, which is a new technology startup that claims to be modernizing the PR industry. Uh, Angie, until very recently, you were heading Porta Novelli in Singapore, is that correct? That's right, yeah. Okay, so you've got a, 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 a quite decent and long agency background. Yes, yes, I'm one of those long-time agency ladies. <laughs> um, so tell us a little bit um, about why you decided to launch Spry. Um, now, I, I'll confess, I don't know a huge amount about Spry. I, sure. I know I've done some research into the, into the product. Obviously, we ran a story on it. Yeah. But because I've never used the product, um, I think my understanding is a little superficial. So I, I'd rather... Perhaps you explained it. Sure. And maybe also tell us why you decided to launch it um, after working at an agency. Sure, yeah, happy to. Uh, Spry is really, at the heart of it, we're a technology company that's aimed at modernizing the PR space. Um, so we do on-demand communications uh, that are really basic PR services um, using a, a technology platform. So we're, we're really trying to change how people think about getting basic work done quickly and efficiently and at a really high quality. Um, if you think about like the Uberization of everything that has changed so many different industries, it's, it's, it was about time for something like this to come to PR because there's so many models that um, are, have been tried in other places, but in our space, it's been the same model, same mm -hmm. kind of madman era consultative based bill by the hour very kind of old school even though the the tactics that we deploy are new and cool and and modern the the business is the same as it's always been mm -hmm. and it was just a matter of time for someone to get in there and disrupt it and that's what we aim to do mm -hmm. um I, the reason that that spry really came about is is it's something i've been ruminating on for a while in different concepts but when I was in Asia especially, this notion of getting quick work done without a lot of strategy conversation, without maybe it being tied to a campaign, was still very foreign to big agencies because agencies are trained to really like sell up and, and sell big retainers and these kinds of things. But the, a lot of clients, even big brands, just need to get some simple stuff done really fast. Um, but agencies aren't set up to deliver that cost-effectively mm -hmm. because of their infrastructure and layers and bureaucracy and stuff. Um, so I saw that as a big need in the industry. And then you combine that with the talent realities that we live in today. You know, agencies are still selling people first, teams first, expertise that, that is in the people. And people are moving in and out of agencies and jobs in general much faster. And people are leaving the, the full-time workforce and going, going gig work, going side hustle uh, more and more. You see all the data that supports this, you know, that trajectory is going to continue. Mm -hmm. 
the agency world isn't prepared for this. That you know, we at the agency, you're still apologizing to clients when people leave. You're still trying not to get fired. You're still trying to find that perfect person and personality that matches. So I was looking at both of those things, thinking there's got to be a way to leverage that reality of talent changing without mm -hmm. fighting against it. Mm -hmm. So Spry was really born out of both of those needs. You know, the need for that quick on-demand talent and the need to leverage the talent realities in the world we have today. Hmm. And so Spry brings both of those together. Okay, and so how does it work exactly? It works, it's very simple. I mean, it's a complex technology algorithm that makes it work, but in reality, it's very simple to use. As a client, you download the app, you put in some information about what you need, like if you need a press release, you give us the brief in the app. Uh, you take a video selfie doing that. You can type it in. You can put links. We make it really easy to do it. And then our algorithm matches that work assignment to the right, the right talent. So freelance and moonlight talent that mm -hmm. we have. Then they go off and it goes to the top three or four people that are a good match. The first person who gets that gig takes it um, if they want. And they go work on it and then it comes back. It's anonymous. So there's no actual matchmaking of mm -hmm. the two parties. Mm -hmm. As the client, you don't have to deal with sifting through portfolios and resumes and interviewing and doing rate negotiations, because it's a fixed fee, it's upfront, um, and you just get the work back. And, it, and the quality is amazingly high, higher than most agencies can deliver, so what we've been quoted by many beta customers. Um, and the, they get it back faster and cheaper than mm -hmm. they could ever get anywhere else. And do you ensure the quality is high? We do. We have several mechanisms that make that so. The vetting of the talent, first of all, is really strict. So we make sure people can write. We make sure people are experts in, in the industry and that they have good backgrounds. Journalists free, you know, and freelance PR people um, are in the system. And then we have part of our technology checks things like plagiarism and grammar and spelling and that sort of thing. Um, so no document actually goes through our system without running through those checks. And that's an automated, uh, automatic thing that, you know, in most agency relationships doesn't even exist. It's very fundamental. Um, and then we also have a human editor who oversees mm. and, and looks at everything, makes sure that it's on brief and that meets the needs of the client. Mm. Now, Spry was incubated at Omnicom Group, right. your former employers. Yes. Is Omnicom funding Spry? Yes, they are a major funder. Okay. Um, and they, they've been hugely supportive early on of the concept hmm. um, because they're really looking at innovation in this space. Um, and I think they saw a lot of potential in this model because it, it captures a lot of business that big holding companies can't go after, really startups and smaller one-off stuff, um, mm. e even big projects require on-demand work, right? Um, and big holding companies just aren't set up to do that. And so this, they, they, that's why they believed in the concept um, early on and they helped incubate us. Um, and now we have agency customers across a huge variety of, of agency types. Holding companies are, are working with us. We have independent boutique shops. We have tiny consultancies that are using us too. So it's, it's for any agency to be our customer um, as well mm -hmm. as brands. Okay. And so you don't see it competing with agencies? Not really. If, 
there you could argue that uh, you could get a press release done at your typical agency definitely mm. but most big agencies are taking on press release projects or media list pro you know one off projects mm. um, so we really look at it as a partnership agencies should be looking to leverage us mm -hmm. um, because we provide all those services way cheaper than they can do themselves, mm. faster than they can do themselves, and probably better because we are hiring for writing. We aren't hiring for strategy and creative and all the things that agencies are now trying to sell. Mm -hmm. um, so we're looking at that. We can be that sharpshooter help that they need, and, and we don't need the credit. They can just use us on the side. We don't need to be in front of their client um, so that they can see us as kind of a secret weapon. Mm, okay. Um, it's interesting because there's been a lot of talk about how uh, agencies are, you know, are trying to move further up the value chain and, and maybe get away from some of the more commoditized services. Do you think that perhaps Spry is a way for them to, to do that? Definitely. Definitely. They can do what they've said they wanted to do, which is go further upstream, be more consultative, get out of the execution work, where they typically do lose money in the end because... Mm. They, they make more with these senior people being more billable. Mm -hmm. um, that's just how the models have worked. And so the reality is though, day to day, the, the execution stuff still makes up about 30% right. of it's, the market. It's a significant- It's still a big and, chunk. And you know, in Asia, I'd argue perhaps even more. Definitely, definitely. So I do wonder whether for some agencies at least, they would view Spry as some sort of competition. They. Uh, they shouldn't because they should leverage us to do what they do best, redeploy their same people to do that more strategic work that they claim to want to do um, and train for them to do and, and that they're well suited to do. And then leave that quick and dirty one-off PR request stuff to us. Mm -hmm. and, and really you can keep that same, um, you know, all the business indicators, the, the size of your team, can stay the same. Your um, your profit margin will increase if you use us because of how uh, cost effective we are. Um, we don't have the infrastructure. We're a tiny team. We're a virtual you know freelance network. Mm -hmm. um, the the technology is built, so we, it doesn't cost a lot for our operations. So that's why we're able to deliver great stuff for low price mm. and and they should use us for that too and what's the response been like um let's start with from the client side hugely positive i mean most of the time when i talk to to clients who are hearing about us but aren't you know not really sure what we do as soon as i tell them anything they, they're already downloading it mm. they're saying you know where has this been you know this is so it seems kind of obvious that this would be a new iteration in our space but no one's done it mm -hmm. Um, and so they're hugely interested. And then when they try us, they're surprised at how easy it is and how high the quality is. Um, I think that's been the biggest surprise for clients that, that try us and then kind of evaluate the work that they get from us versus the work they would have gotten from a freelancer they know or from an agency experience. Mm -hmm. um, and then agencies have told us that the work they get from us is better than what they can get in-house a lot of times. So so we've seen it really, I mean, it has a huge impact when it's 
it's so easy to use and if you just get that draft in your inbox it's already good to go mm. and what's the response been like from um the the freelancers from the people looking for gigs yeah i that part has been a really big surprise to me personally i thought it would be harder to find people really high quality people mm. and it has been there's been a flood into our our workforce app um, to try to get in with spry in fact we've pulled back a little bit of our marketing efforts to attract additional workforce because we we've got such a solid group um i think the it just is very telling of the times we're in and everyone's interested in this side hustle idea um, a lot of them have full-time jobs and they yeah. just want to make a little extra money on the weekend. I'm just thinking if my reporters heard about this, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> they'd be interested for sure. Exactly. Journalists are really interested because especially if you look at the model we have, they, it's, it's anonymous. So they're not worried about, mm. you know, their own brand. Maybe they're trying to, you know, pitch a different story in the New York Times and they don't want to show that they're working on, on commercial stuff. But, um, so that's makes it easy. And then they know how to take little bits of information from companies and bang out a story and, mm. and do it really well. So journalists love it for that. Mm. Do you vet for conflicts of interest? We don't really vet for conflicts, mostly because in today's world, there aren't that many conflicts that can't be overcome. Mm -hmm. So it's, a, it's definitely an, an honor system on that. We ask people for the, the brands that they work on, the experience that they have. Um, and so if there is any type of a conflict, um, they should be opting out. Mm. Um, but if they, if they don't, we also let clients know that that's our policy too. And so clients wouldn't want to put anything, uh, super sensitive mm. or confidential into our system at all. If they, if they were worried about that. Mm. I was also thinking of the case where perhaps a journalist ends up writing the press release during the weekend and then covering the story during the week. That's fine. Um, Okay. From our perspective, it's fine, right? From the Spry perspective, we're only concerned with that press release part. Sure. They're writing it, do a great from, job yeah. for the client. From and the then media perspective, what perhaps. That? Yeah, it, that's, that's definitely up, up for them to really look at. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's, a, it, it's an interesting um, predicament because I don't think we've ever... Well, I, I suppose we have, you know, I, I, I've heard of journalists. We, I think we all know journalists who moonlight. Yeah. Um, on the side and of course if they have expertise in a certain area then yeah it makes sense they're more likely to to end up writing about those areas but yes I, I can imagine it would create something of a conflict perhaps um what would you say has been the biggest challenge you've found in terms of rolling out spry um i think the biggest challenge has just been getting clients to feel comfortable giving their work to an anonymous workforce. Mm. Uh, it's not really a challenge in getting getting them to try it because once they hear about it, they, they're, they're willing to try. There's not a big barrier to trial. It's a low investment, you know. Um, it's not a commitment. There's no contract or anything like that. So that part uh, makes it easy to give it a try. But they're a little nervous sometimes about, oh, I really need to meet with my person or get face-to-face -face with someone um, especially more of the old school kinds of clients. And who's going to take me out for a drink? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Who's going to take me out for a drink? And also, you know, just having that, that person to call. Mm. Um, we're so trained, we've trained our clients to need us for that as PR people mm. over the years. But then when I say, you know, yeah, but you, you Uber every day or you, you know, you're, you're fine with um, a, a wag walking your dog. You haven't met with that person. They come to you. We were in an era of trust, thanks to all of these on-demand technologies. 
Um, and if you try us and it's a great success, you will then trust us for future uh, work. And that's sure to be true, right? It's proven to be true. Mm. So it's, it's a, a little bit of a hurdle when they first hear about it. And just reconfiguring your mind to order comms this way, it's a different approach. Mm. And so it's getting the word out to them that it's, it's fine, it's gonna be okay. It's actually the same type of process on the back end. You know, your work gets assigned to a PR person who's trained in the industry or a journalist who knows how to write. It, just like it would be at your typical agency. Mm. The, just the mechanism has changed for how you get the work. So you, you mentioned that um, it, it was incubated at Omnicom PR Group. What did that, what did that process involve, the incubation? Um, well, I can't get into too much of it because I, I don't know how much they want to keep proprietary. But mm. really, it's, um, I would say it's been super supportive of entrepreneurship and innovation and disruption which might surprise a lot of people because it's so big. Mm. Um, uh, Porter Novelli was super supportive. When I first concepted this idea, I talked to Brad McAfee, my boss at the time, about it a lot in, in concept form and, and how, how this could really work, how agencies could use it, um, you know, kind of helped shape some, some of the things I was thinking about. So I had great mentorship within Omnicom overall, within the Omnicom PR group as well, um, and Karen Van Bergen and several others, um, and outside the industry too. I mean, so I, I really took all those different components and then presented that to, to OPRG, um, and they, they were really interested right away because they, they're already thinking about innovation, you know, and different things that need to, to change and happen in our space and to try. Um, experiment a little bit. So I, th I think that's what really got them excited. Mm -hmm. Okay. Ah, okay. And do you envisage expanding the platform beyond your existing um, set of products? Definitely. We were just scratching the surface on what this model can do. And so we, we, we're at the basic level right now with things like press releases and media lists and digital influencer lists, blog posts, and that sort of thing. Um, but we'll quickly look at areas like graphic design. Um, we're even looking at some form of, of kind of action plans or recommendations for clients who are you know, thinking about launching a product or they have an event or something like that. A little higher level work, um, but still very quick um, and easy stuff to get through the model. And who knows after that? I mean, we have so many different um, opportunities to expand. We're also looking at a lot of companies have approached us with the algorithm itself and whether that could work internally in their organizations because mm. it matches yeah. the talent I information in there is different than most algorithms. Mm -hmm. it, it's industry experience, personal passions and experience that's almost equally weighted with their industry work. Um, and it gets the best person for the job, but we don't include information like gender, race, mm -hmm. ethnicity. So there's absolutely no way for any bias to appear in the system. And as companies now are really looking at this area, uh, as they're taking it more seriously, technology can actually have an answer for how to make sure uh, your, your company isn't institutionalizing some sort of bias in the work that's assigned. Um, so companies are looking at us for that, too. We're, we're exploring all those areas right now for expansion. Okay, well, Angie, good luck. Thank um, you. With the continued rollout of Spry. And 
stay in touch and let us know how you're doing in terms of disrupting the PR industry. Thank you very much. Yes, I hope all your listeners try us out. Just look at um, the App Store and download Spry Client um, and give us a try and let us know your thoughts. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to The Echo Chamber. Brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by Marketeers. Sponsored by March Communications, connecting innovation and people.